the principal themes for our retreat now, desire and soul-making. As we've already said, uh, these themes and also the theme of the connection, the relationship between desire and soul-making, these are themes that by their very nature are inexhaustible, endlessly profound. A lifetime of exploring uh, these themes will not exhaust them. Uh, but let's at least try to, uh, to, to find a way in and to introduce, uh, say, say, say a little something by way of introduction to these themes. So, <clears throat> if you're the kind of person that's put yourself in the position to listen to this kind of talk, uh, it's probably uh, obvious to you, you'll probably agree, looking at our wider culture, the wider Western culture, actually the wider globalized, now globalized culture uh, in the world, you'd probably agree, I'm guessing, that uh, looking at that culture um, uh, with regards to desire, that, that the culture could profit uh, from uh, some more investigation, some more discernment, some more wisdom regarding desire. Uh, and so... That's a theme that you've probably heard many times in Dharma talks and other spiritual teachings, etc., I'm sure. <clears throat> in a way, actually, you know, we can look at the, the history of our culture and see that with regard to desire, there actually have been quite some liberations over uh, several hundred years, etc. Um, but also some more entanglement and more complication and... Uh, imprisonment with regard to desire. Part of it is due to things like um, the kind of economic thinking that underpins our societies and, and politics that absolutely insists on a growth economy. So it therefore insists on propelling uh, and, and uh, injecting pumping life into consumerism. Part of it's dependent on that. Part of it's also our modern sense of self. Our modernist sense of self um, is, if you like, based on the exercise of choice and uh, the propping up and the, the inflation of certain kinds of um, identities that come through the exercise of choice and consumerism, etc. So all these, these are complicated factors. Um, interesting so there are reasons that kind of give us a whole extra dimension of problem with desire uh, related to all this economy, globalization, and the modern sense of self. What I want to uh, right now go into is um, the kinds of... Uh, problems that we might have and confusions that we might have as um, Buddhist practitioners or people who are interested in Buddhism or similar kinds of spiritual teachings in a way, and again I'm sure you'd agree with this, that uh, we have uh, 
a set of teachings and practices that actually um, help us a lot in regard to desire and a lot of the entanglements of the of, uh, with desire in desire. But at the same time, we can also be prey to a kind of cognitive dissonance uh, with regard to desire. And this is understandable, I think, and it's difficult, it's not easy. So um, it's not something to judge, uh, just to become aware of. And this is a little bit what I want to go into as a way of opening our topic up and setting a stage. Because sometimes as... um, whatever you want to call it, Buddhist practitioners, spiritual practitioners, we can kind of be prey to an oversimplification in our thinking of and conceiving of and relating to desire. Either that and or um, uh, we are subject to contradictory messages, messages that are uh, and teachings in a way that are mutually contradictory, that contradict each other, so that we end up um, confused with regards to desire, to clinging, to craving, attachment, and also with regards to where we're moving in the whole path, what awakening or enlightenment is, whatever word you want to use, and what that uh, does to or with desire, clinging, craving, attachment. So there can be quite some confusion. Sometimes we're not even that conscious that we are confused and that we are um, uh, harboring a cognitive dissonance prey to different and conflicting messages. So sometimes, for example, as I said, people, uh, we oversimplify. And so we just say, desire is a problem because it brings suffering. Desire leads to suffering. And awakening, enlightenment, is imagined or conceived of as some state that there's, there's the, the absence of desire. One has no desires. And so desires, desire leads to suffering. It's a problem. At awakening, there won't be any desires. Well, that's the kind of ideal of awakening. A very, very simplistic. What comes out of such a teaching? What comes out of such a... Uh, uh, or rather interpretation of the teaching. What comes out of such a view? How does it translate into our life? Is it even coherent? Does it make sense? Does it work? Um, it can be uh, very, very oversimplified like that in some instances, or um, a little bit more sophisticated and uh, <coughs> taking up the teachings, the differentiation that the Buddha made originally between, um, for instance, wholesome desires. He sometimes made this distinction between wholesome desires, kusala, uh, or skillful desires, uh, on the one hand. So, for example, the desire for awakening is is a skillful, wholesome desire. And the desire to uh, cultivate, develop, um, possess uh, path factors, factors that move us along the path, um, samadhi, mindfulness, uh, compassion, um, factors of enlightenment that move us towards uh, the end of suffering or the decrease of suffering or the end of craving and desire. Um, these desire for path factors, as regard, that's a wholesome, these are wholesome desires. Unwholesome desires, akusa, unskillful, um, would be desires for sense pleasure or desires to avoid uh, unpleasant senses, um, 
unpleasant sense contact, desires, uh, the desire to kind of shore up or solidify or boost um, the sense of self or the ego. These are um, akusala, regarded as akusala. So that in that in that kind of uh, distinction making, delineation, delineations, then the desire, for example, for jhana to open to and explore deep states of meditative absorption, etc., is regarded as a wholesome desire. The desire for the pleasant taste or the comfort that we might get from uh, chocolate chip cookies or whatever, this is regarded as an unwholesome desire. So there's a certain sophistication in that and a certain uh, clarity in that. Nowadays, many of us, and again, are very understandable, this is not an easy area, um, we have become quite confused with all this, uh, often. Not, not always, not everyone, not in every respect, but there can be some confusion. So oftentimes we think, I should let go of my desire for jhana. That would be a kindness to myself, to let go of my, uh, we call it grasping at, or striving, or whatever. Um, that would be a kindness. If I say to myself, on the other hand, I won't have that chocolate chip cookie, um, then sometimes this is regarded as an unkindness. So we've got it exactly back to front from what the Buddha might have said 2,500 years ago. Or, again, the, the, we, we have a hard time um, with the um, self's movement in time towards what it wants. Um, or we might use words like aspiration, but we quickly... Uh, have a contradictory teaching that talks about becoming, and becoming is not something to be attached to. Becoming is an ego, so this is an ego movement. So this movement of the self in time is regarded as a movement of ego. Problem that these things don't add up coherently. And then, even more so in the whole realm of romantic and sexual uh, desires, longings, uh, relationships, etc., you know, it should be, I think, o- obvious to anyone over the age of 14 uh, that um, sexuality and romance, sexual and romantic relations do not bring the end of suffering. They don't <laughs> usually even decrease suffering. Um, but still, we have, in, in our sort of mishmash of teaching, somehow, we, we, we recognize, well, somehow that's important to me, for most people, sex, sexual, sexual relationships, romantic relationships, that desire. So it's kind of okay somehow, but we say, it's okay, but don't be attached. Does it even make sense? Does it work? Okay, I have that, because for some reason I'm not quite sure about it, it seems to be important to us, um, but don't get attached, whatever that means. What, what does that look like? Or again, with relation to the in relation to the world and and the senses, and sense experience and beauty, etc. We might say, "Oh, enjoy it. It's okay to enjoy it. Um, just don't get attached." And what does it mean? Let it come. Let it go. Is it that kind of kind of almost a uh, little bit again oversimplistic uh, uh, teaching? Let everything come and let it go. Be in the moment. Be with what is. Open to the flow. What does that look like like to live, try and live life that way? 
Is it really a complete enough teaching? Is it really an accurate teaching for what moves us and what we are moved by and how we live? Is it an honest teaching? If I am telling you how to live that way, am I really living that way in regard to all this? Who lives that way? Who lives that way? How can I have integrity in relation to such teachings? Are these teachings even enabling me to to live with integrity with respect to them? Because they don't form an integral, uh, coherent unit. Something may be too simplistic in our, in our interpretation, our understanding, our approach. There's not um, enough sophistication in the psychology. It's not adequate to our needs. Because what gets served by this kind of either oversimplification or contradictory teachings? What gets served? And what does not get served? And is there a way to serve what we most want the need to be served? Somehow in our, in our understanding in relation to all this. And is there a way <coughs> to approach all this in a way that really uh, makes sense in the, deepest, uh, in the deepest, fullest way to our whole being? That's a coherent uh, understanding, opening opening us. You know, from a certain perspective, or if we <clears throat> if we take that um, kind of understanding, uh, awakening, <clears throat> enlightenment is the end of suffering, and we kind of uh, reduce it to really emphasize awakening is the end of suffering, and, and kind of reduce it in a kind of uh, thin and brittle way, in a reductionist way, then actually from a certain point of view you could say even the desire for awakening then is really, essentially, in in the desire for the end of suffering, if that's really what's moving us, then the desire for awakening is really a kind of desire for um, a radical decrease of unpleasantness. The desire for awakening from that from the, that limited point of view, or limited conception, the desire for awakening is really, essentially, just a desire for a radical uh, decrease in our unpleasantness, in our unpleasant sensations. And you can look at this a few ways. If you say, well, suffering is the second arrow, if you know that teaching of the Buddhas, it's just the second arrow, but still a kind of unpleasantness. It's the unpleasantness of the second arrow. So by removing that second arrow at full awakening in a certain system of what awakening means, then I've drastically reduced unpleasantness. Or if my vision of awakening is not to be reborn, that means really the end of both pleasant and unpleasant sensation, the end of Vedana, the end of perception, the end of experience. So is that, is that how we're going to conceive of, the, of, of what is moving us if we desire awakening? that we're desiring this radical um, decrease in the unpleasantness. Because conceiving it that way, this is what's moving me, this is the desire there. That's different than, uh, it's not conceiving it as a, a desire for awakening, as the desire to know and to open to true nature. The true nature of oneself, the true nature of all things. It's not then being conceived as a desire for truth, a desire to open to and know uh, the Buddha nature, to live the Buddha nature, and know that one lives the Buddha nature 
to know, to open to the divine or God, if you're okay with that language. And some people say, no, that's, that kind of desire is just a desire for consolation. All this talk about Buddha nature and God and divinity, it's just consolation. That's what you're after, really, is it? Really, let's look into the, 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 the psychology, our psychology and what moves us here. And if the desire for awakening is conceived too narrowly, this desire really essentially for a reduction or an end of unpleasantness, then it's not being conceived as a desire for beauty, to open to, to know, to live in beauty. It's not a desire for mystery. So what about the desires of a mystic? Is that what a mystic wants? Just the decrease of unpleasantness? And is our desire, deep desire for beauty, or desire for deep beauty, is that just a desire for pleasant sensations? What of our love of the world? What of our sensuality? What of our love and desire for that which is beyond the world, beyond the senses, beyond experience, the transcendent, the unfabricated. What about that desire? Is that really just about eradicating uh, or, or drastically reducing unpleasantness? What about our desire for art to make art, to participate in art, to receive art? What about our desire for scientific uh, knowledge and discovery? Is all that, are all those kind of desires, are they really just delusion? Because one could look, look at it that way, and I think some, some people do sometimes. Is science, for example, only for the purpose of, uh, only non-delusion or not a waste of time when it's for the purpose of reducing suffering? For example, in medical research or in uh, the development of technology that makes our life safer or more comfortable or whatever. Is Romantic desire, sexual desire, is that delusion only? Is it only delusion? I mean, certainly delusion can come into all of these uh, movements of desire. But is it only delusion? Is it only the seeking of pleasant sensations? Is it only an expression of love, uh, meaning uh, care, meaning meta, really? or a kind of search for security of the self, or a pumping up of the ego in some way, being reassured that one's attractive or desirable or lovable or whatever it is, or some kind of combination of all, does that kind of combination of all those things, does that sum up the movement of desire in romantic desire and sexual desire? Or is there something else too there, beyond all of those, more than, alongside even, 
something that's vital to our being and to our sense of existence. Something uh, vital to our psyche. So we have, I don't think we have really a Dharma language yet, <coughs> or, or a Dharma psychology that has uh, words for um, the kind of desire that n- that is not uh, a desire for an increase in pleasantness, or a decrease in unpleasantness, or a decrease in suffering. The kind of desire that's not just to solidify the self somehow. We don't have a word for that kind of desire that actually is for the sake of and leading to and supporting and involving soul-making and soul. We don't have uh, a psychology uh, that really um, has a word for that. So we want to use the word eros, E-R-O-S. It's a word that's... um, familiar, Um, different people define it different way, have different kinds of associations with it, I'll come back to it in a a few minutes, and want to define it in a very particular way. Eros as a movement um, of, of desire, a kind of desire that involves, supports, opens, stimulates, and is for the sake of soul making. So just as in in the uh, realm of the imagination, or rather in the <clears throat> with regard to the imagination, uh, we we made distinctions. Uh, so we talk about we can talk about what's imaginary, and the sort of uh, papancha getting lost in uh, fictions that are just entangling me and not serving, and just kind of delusory. Uh, imaginary versus um, what could we call a kind of um, imag- skillful use of the imagination, helpful use of the imagination that is creative. For instance, I'm planning um, uh, to build a retreat center or I'm planning um, even just my shopping list or I'm planning uh, a lecture that I have to give or whatever it is. And one uses the imagination in a creative, helpful way. So whatever word we would give to that. So there's imaginary, papancha and all that. There's this creative planning, imagination, whatever. And there's a third category which we've been calling imaginal. That doesn't equate to those other two. It's something else. We need this other word to draw attention to something. So similarly with respect to desire, um, so I would like right now to um, uh, say desire includes three kinds, at least three kinds, or at least draw attention to three kinds right now, um, craving, clinging, and eros. Three kinds, craving, clinging, and eros. Now I'm using those words differently. We will be using those words differently than you've heard before, um, probably most of you. Um, So uh, I'll explain what I mean, as we'll explain what we mean as we go through. And these are our definitions. It's not a matter of us claiming this is the right definition, everyone else should adopt our definition or anything like that, or this is the historical definition. I, I don't care about any of that. I just want to make uh, a delineation between three kinds of desire. Craving, clinging, eros. And 
part of that, what that comes out of making that delineation is that we need to recognize that these desires, each of them, these kind, three kinds of desires, they each, um, if you like, unfold differently. They each bring us to a different place. Um, they lead in different directions. They uh, have different effects. So our jobs are partly to um, discern between these three. Uh, can we recognize what's craving and what's eros? Um, can we navigate between sometimes, uh, if it's possible? Uh, can we transform one into the other? Can we recognize, are we clear, what unfolds from each and how? And use them appropriately when we need to use that understanding um, as and when in different ways. So, yes, absolutely, part of our path is developing our uh, skill, if you like, our capacity to um, let go of craving, um, by which I mean um, the kind of contraction of the being around something or other uh, that act, that does not um, uh, ease suffering. It, it contracts the being. It does not lead to soul making. Um, it's a movement that's actually really um, intent on either seeking pleasure or decreasing unpleasantness or solidifying the self somehow and, and actually does not give us much does not open the being, does not open the sense of existence, rather the opposite. So yes, absolutely, uh, a strand of our path is our developing our capacity, our ability, our skill to let go, to drop um, craving uh, when, when it arises, or, as I said, to transform it, if it's possible, when it's possible, to something more um, skillful. Uh, so for example... Those cookies or that chocolate cake or whatever it is, um, can I? Uh, do I need it? What's it going to give me? If it's just pleasure or comfort, I'm looking for or whatever it is. Or that holiday, I, don't know, I think oh, I'm going to go for two weeks wherever it is, and I'm, I'm imagining all these pleasant sensations and the release of unpleasant sensations, etc. Can I recognize these movements? Do I have the ability, the know-how, the, the, the skill to let go of them? Or when I'm actually, when my desires are actually uh, not so much to seek pleasure, but at their, act, they're in fact the m movements of trying to avoid unpleasantness, running away from something, being driven, for instance, by a fear of something, a fear of facing something within ourselves, or some difficult emotion. And it might come out as I reach, in, in a way that I reach towards that cake or whatever. It's not actually the cake that I'm after. I'm just after something that uh, shields me, numbs me from something else. So all that's really important, recognizing it, noticing it, getting skillful at letting go, dropping it, transforming it. But the Dharma is much, much more than that. 
it offers much, much more than that. The possibilities um, of our being, the possibilities of our existence go way beyond just the dropping and the letting go of craving in that kind of those kind of ways. And the endless sort of there it comes up again, then I drop it, there it comes up again, and I drop it in this sort of repetitive, endless movement through life of just trying to drop craving and live without craving, and then sometimes just giving into it and then dropping it again, etc. And kind of reaching some kind of status quo that's sort of okay with that. There's so much more um, beauty, depth, possibility, wonder, magic waiting for us beyond that. Important, but so much more is possible. So the second kind of desire is what I would want to call clinging. Okay, And again, these are, these are not standard, um, uh, standard usage as, of these words. I just can't think of other words right now. I just want to make something clear. Um, so clinging, by which I mean any... I'm just going to be very brief here because I've talked a lot about this um, previously and written about it, etc. So, just very briefly. Clinging, by which I mean um, any um, pulling towards us at any level of the being, even if it's just the subtlest movement of mind to pull something towards us um, or, or push it away or pull ourselves towards something. Um, or, uh, so any any pull or push towards an object or an anticipated object or whatever. And there's a huge range of that push-pull um, of, of what we call clinging. So the most gross, literally clinging to someone who we don't want to leave us, for example, uh, at one end, at the most gross end, and at the most subtle end, even just the, the, the momentary um, perceiving of anything, the momentary experience of anything in the attention. Attention works by actually, um, if you like, grasping around the object that it's attending to. Even just for a moment, that's that's a very subtle form of clinging. And even just the uh, sense or the belief, not even conscious, that the thing that I'm paying attention to is, uh, if you like, uh, has an inherent existence independent of the way I'm looking at it, independent of the uh, the mind's way of looking. That belief, which is usually not even a conscious belief, that belief is fundamental avidya in the Dharma tradition. It's fundamental delusion and ignorance, and that constitutes a very subtle form of clinging. This reification, this grasping at as real, is, if you like, the most subtle level of what we call clinging. So there's this huge range of this push-pull. And uh, what one can do in practice is develop different ways of looking, a whole host of ways of looking uh, that one can play with, enter into, move in and out of, and explore their effects on the whole world of perception, and one uh, and different ways of looking uh, ha- let go of different degrees of clinging, different kinds of clinging, so that one plays moving up and down uh, this range of how much clinging there is in the consciousness, so to speak, at any time. And one learns from that, apart from the sheer delight of that play, one learns from that that. Uh, 
perception, all perception of self, of object, of world, of space and time is dependent on clinging. To the degree that there is clinging, these objects appear and they appear solid and separate, etc. To the degree that I let go of clinging, that whole world of uh, objects, selves, uh, the, the world and space and time and all the rest of it fades. So we understand, we begin to understand through this play in meditation with, with ways of looking, developing that art, we understand the fabricated nature, we understand the, uh, the fabricating of perception and the fading, the dependent fading of all perception, all perception. So we understand the dependent origination and the dependent fading of all things. And we recognize, we come to understand gradually the radical emptiness of absolutely everything, all things. Not just self, but every object, inner or outer, element or whatever uh, aspect of experience, uh, the whole world, space, time, awareness, everything, empty, empty, empty. And in that, there's a possibility of opening to the unfabricated. It develops this art of letting go, of clinging more and more subtle, more and more deep, and there's an opening of the being to the unfabricated, what is not fabricated. And not that one lives in such a state, but one emerges from that with that understanding of emptiness, of going up and down, exploring dependent origination, and it opens up radically the whole sense of existence. Beautiful, precious possibility uh, to know that in life and live with that knowing. Living with that knowing, living with that opened up sense of existence is not to live without clinging. One actually comes to the insight and re- recognizes through this whole play with ways of looking, understanding, dependent origination, etc. One recognizes a few things that mean that one, one would never um, regard it as a goal to live without clinging. One realizes, first of all, that it's impossible. Um, clinging is involved, subtle clinging is involved in any perception, any experience whatsoever. So I cannot live without clinging. Even just to pay attention to anything at all is, is, is to cling. It's impossible to live without clinging. Would I want to anyway? Do I not, uh, when I am, uh, when I love my family, when I have friendships that are important to me, and uh, or I'm with a lover, or in a romantic relationship, um, these kinds of relationships, the way we understand them these days, the way they are beautiful and meaningful to us these days, they actually involve clinging and attachment. We are not trying to live with uh, some kind of monastic ideal like that, or hermit ideal like that, in in society. And it's not that um, having that attachment is some kind of second best in terms of awakening. This understanding of emptiness actually, as I said, opens up the whole sense of existence and liberates ways of looking. So existence becomes the art of ways of looking, the flexibility of ways of looking, the play of ways of looking. We realize too that clinging itself is empty. Through all this thorough, radical, deep investigation into pen origination, we realize that clinging too is empty. 
and then uh, there is freedom there, freedom to look in different ways, freedom to relate in different ways, including clinging. So we can move in and out of different kinds of clinging. There's freedom there, not trying to live without clinging. Because if I do try and live without clinging, that's impossible, and what would it mean anyway, and would we want to? But one of the most essential things I want to highlight right now is that if I'm trying to do that, if I'm oversimplistic, I'm trying to do that, I will actually miss eros and soul making. There's a, there's a good chance that I will miss eros and soul making, the, the soul making that goes with eros. So we're free, rather, to move and to explore and see what comes from what. So there's craving, there's clinging, and there's eros. And eros, as said, has something to do, is intrinsically bound up and intricately bound up with soul-making, the whole movement and uh, dynamic of soul-making. So Catherine's going to talk more about soul-making <coughs> shortly. Um, but uh, if I just take a little time right now to define what we mean by eros. And uh, I say there's, there's two kind of levels of definition. So right now I'll give what we call the, the sort of um, small definition of eros for right now. And, uh, and we'll explain more how later, how this is bound up with soul making. <clears throat> and it's really important to understand how. Um, but as a small definition of eros, what is this word and, and uh, how can we begin to understand it? So I want to say eros is, is a desire, it's a wanting. Eros is the wanting of more contact with, more connection with, more intimacy with, more knowing of, more penetration of, more opening to an erotic object or a beloved other or whatever. I'll say that again. <clears throat> um, and I'm using these words uh, in, in, in a really full way. Uh, with all, all the range of their implication, we'll come back to this and um, why that's actually intrinsic to the definition you'll see. But just for right now, this small, what I'm calling the small definition of eros is very important. Eros is a desire, a wanting for more contact with, more connection with, more intimacy with, more knowing of, more penetration of, and more opening to um, an object, an erotic object, let's call it, a, a, or a beloved other, or whatever. Now, <clears throat> you might not recognize your experience uh, of Eros in that, and it, I, it, it actually sounds uh, perhaps quite dry as a definition, it's quite humble, if you like, as a definition. But there's tremendous power. I hope by the end of the retreat, at least, you're going to see just how powerful um, that definition is, how much emerges from it, how much it implies and sets in motion and implicates. So can you remember that small definition for now? Eros is the wanting of more contact, more connection with, more intimacy with, more knowing of, more penetration of, more opening to an erotic object, a beloved other. So, uh, eros, you'll notice in that definition, is certainly not um, just 
sexual attraction or sexual energy. Uh, it includes that. You can hear that in those words, but it's more than that. So it includes sexual attraction, sexual energy, but it's much, much more than that. If you look at that definition again. It's also, uh, we're not equating Eros, in our definition of Eros, we're not equating it um, with uh, Freud's usage of uh, Eros as the pleasure principle, essentially just the seeking of pleasant sensations uh, by the organism. <coughs> uh, so, yes, pleasure is involved, but it's more than that. Um, our definition uh, will actually be, will include that, but be, be broader than that. That's not the principal movement. That's not the principal principle, if you like. Uh, I think later in his uh, theorizing, Freud equated Eros with the life instinct in contradistinction to Thanatos, which is the death instinct. Um, so there's a relationship between our definition of Eros and that uh, life force, if you like, but we're not equating them. Notice also that we're not equating Eros with love. So some people just uh, say Eros just means love. Um, and that's fine. How other people define it is completely fine. I'm not arguing with anyone. I'm just saying we're going to use it in a very particular way. Neither, and this is uh, subtle but really important, neither are we equating it as uh, with the way the Neoplatonists uh, um, uh, characterized Eros as a movement um, a movement or a force for unification towards unifying, a movement towards uh, oneness. Uh, there's again, there's a real relationship there between that movement and what we're calling eros, but absolutely not. Uh, we'll say more about this. We are not reducing eros to that at all. There was a Scottish psychoanalyst uh, active in the 20th century called Douglas Fairburn. He belonged to the British Object Relations School, if you're familiar with, with that kind of thing. And he defined libido, libido as the uh, wanting contact or wanting connection with an other. Um, so you can hear the similarities there between what he calls libido and what we're calling eros, but there's still really important distinctions um, between how we're using it and what he uh, described uh, and what he was pointing to, and we'll come back to that. So notice a couple of other things about this definition of eros, or what we mean just for now. <clears throat> One is that it has a huge range. So Eros really encompasses a huge range. Um, it certainly includes the most intense um, sexual desire. Absolutely, it includes that um, voracious desire, fierce desire, um, sexually or whatever. Absolutely, it includes that. And if in in the uh, realm of the imaginal, this uh, when the sexual eros is very strong and intense. Sometimes it can uh, open up the image or cast an image or vivify uh, an, an imaginal scene or whatever that um, involves uh, you know, images that wouldn't actually be possible physically, sexually, because the anatomy just doesn't work that way. Um, something that's beyond what's physically possible just because the eros uh, and the soul, if you like, is demanding it. Uh, 
and needs it for the soul making uh, or it might involve things that you would never even if they were possible you'd never actually do um, so there's a whole range there from very very intense down to really uh, quite subtle movements of eros that uh, are just uh, kind of um, pregnant there uh, in the in the subtle attraction, uh, for instance, between two people or with an image or with something in the world, um, the uh, subtle delight or magic or magnetism um, that can be there in the beauty of uh, certain connections in uh, that subtle, uh, subtle opening and magic that can be there in the contact with an object. And that object uh, uh, can be anything, and, and, the, and, and that subtlety can be, can be really, uh, really uh, very subtle. So, and for example, it could be with, uh, I'm looking at um, a cherry blossom, the cherry blossom on the tree, and there's that beauty there, and I'm uh, present there just... Uh, with this, there's some kind of subtle magic in in the perceiving, in my opening to, in my uh, the way my gaze and my being, actually my whole body, penetrates and opens to that that vision in this case, and uh, maybe I just want it to continue. I want to continue in that subtle magic. I want to linger there. So there's, the point is there's a huge range, huge, huge range of eros in terms of intensity and subtlety. Um, and a little bit implied by what I just said, eros can be in regard to anything at all. There can be an erotic connection, um, an erotic regard, uh, an erotic relationship with anything at all. Any experience or any element of experience an external object, an internal object, an intrapsychic image, a perception in the world, of the world, anything, any object, even an idea, an emotion, even a a, a suffering, a dukkha, um, a a sense of divinity, all all of this is possible to have um, an erotic connection with. Eros can be there with regard and in relationship with anything at all. So we're going to fill out later as we go on just what the relationship is between that wanting more, contact, connection, intimacy, knowing, penetration, opening, etc., and soul making. We're really going to explore that and fill it out. But for now, just want to point out that Eros, um, one of what it does in a nutshell is it um, opens up and stimulates an opening. of dimensions and facets of existence, of the beloved, um, of the erotic object. It opens up dimensions and facets beyond what we already know and experience. That's what Eros moves towards, that's what it instigates. Um, That involves that can involve, often, most of the time it does involve the imaginal. 
So in this opening up of dimensions and facets beyond what we already know and experience, it involves the imaginal. There's also a way it can work by the quieting of the imaginal and the quieting, the unfabricating of perception. But for this retreat, we're emphasizing mostly the way that eros involves soul-making and the imaginal. (coughs) Now, eros is already in our life. I'm not talking about something that doesn't exist for you, that you have to kind of... um, uh, sort of have this experience that you've never had before. Uh, same with soul making, in fact. Um, what we want to do is um, get familiar with it and draw it out by defining it um, that will enable us, in a way that will enable us to investigate it, to explore it, and see what it does, what it opens up where it takes us, where it takes the being and the sense of existence, and how it does that. Also to understand how it does that. I mean, I've said already, it it takes us, it opens up soul-making, and part of soul-making is it opens up, it expands and enriches, widens and deepens our senses of sacredness. To me, that's uh, an inevitable and intrinsic part of of soul-making. It's what soul-making does. And one of, for me, the most important um, aspects, tasks, if you like, results of soul making. <clears throat> Eros also, in its movement, in the soul making movement, will also make possible for us a view of Eros and itself and desire as sacred. That view becomes possible as something we can enter into, play with, entertain. So why, why are we bothering making this delineation uh, uh, of eros? Um, because, as I said, um, it's part of our life already, just as soul making is. Where there is love, where we really love something, where we're devoted something to something, where there's meaningfulness to us. There, 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 there is soul-making for us. And there, there is eros. So we're talking about something that's already in our life that we would do well to understand more. So an implication from what I just said, it's, it's there when we love the path. And so we have, in other words, an erotic, or we can have an erotic relationship with the path an erotic relationship with the sense of where the path is heading to awakening, enlightenment, whatever word you like. And understanding that as a potentially erotic relationship has all kinds of implications. All kinds of implications that we often don't realize. Far-reaching, profound, radical implications. We'll go into this. Eros, as I've already intimated, is an intrinsic element of the imaginal and therefore of imaginal practice. And you're almost certainly not doing this retreat if you're not already involved in imaginal practice and deeply interested in it. So it's part of what we want to understand um, when we understand imaginal practice and develop that. <clears throat> and as I've already said, Eros... Um, just answering this question, why, kind of summarizing why we would be interested in this thing called Eros, because it's um, inevitable, or because it's uh, 
potentially uh, in, um, instigates and, and supports soul-making. And part of that soul-making, as I said just a couple of minutes ago, <coughs> is part of what comes out of soul-making is a widening and a deepening and enriching and making more manifold a multiplication of our senses of sacredness. So beyond, for example, just a sense of the sacred being universal, some kind of universal oneness or whatever, making more and more manifold, more and more um, uh, multifaceted, multidimensional our senses of the sacredness, wider, deeper. And also, uh, um, lastly, just what, again, what, I'm answering the question: Why, why get interested in the eros? Why make the delineation? Why bother? Um, because of our relationship with sexuality, and I think a need to bring sexuality more actively into the path, so that it forms an integrated uh, uh, part of the path. It's coherently woven into the threads, the strands that make up our path. It has meaningfulness. It has place. It has a relationship with sacredness or the possibility of sacredness in, through, sexuality as a possibility for us. It's not just kind of defilement or delusion or just that we have kind of nothing to say about it in relation to our path and other than the few ethical considerations which people tend to interpret very widely anyway. Or we just say, kind of, well, it's just an expression of love. It's people showing their care, which what they really mean is meta. And then we acknowledge that, yeah, yeah, there's also some craving for pleasant sensations. There's some kind of mixture like that. There's so much more uh, richness and depth and beauty uh, uh, potentially available for us in in if we can weave um, and open up our exploration of sexuality as part of the path. And beyond, including that, I mean, beyond also just the view that says, oh, the sexuality of sex is a desire for merging union. That's what it is. That's what the movement is, as well as some craving and some care. It's actually a mystical or regressive, either way, um, urge for union somehow. It's much more, much more than that, much richer, much deeper in our sense of what sexuality can be and the eros involved there. <clears throat> lastly, you know, so we're trying to explore eros and make the delineation, trying to understand it. Um, but eros, I think, will always some sense of mystery will always remain at least partially mysterious, some sense of something that's not been fully fathomed there, finally understood or captured in some uh, conception or understanding or definition or whatever. Eros will always retain that mysteriousness, that beyondness. Partly it's that's because of the soul-making dynamic itself, which I'll explain. We'll explain that later as we go as we go in. There's something in the soul-making dynamic and in eros itself, which m- keeps making eros bigger than we can uh, than we have understood at present. But also, I just want to finish with um, 
something I think is important to recognize about what we're trying to do here and again what we're what we're trying to serve. In relation to understanding anything, it's important to understand something about understanding. Our understanding of anything, our concept of it or the conceptual framework we approach it with, our understanding of anything is part of what determines, shapes, conditions, fabricates what that thing becomes for us. And part of what unfolds for that thing. So the very concepts that we use, definitions, delineations, understandings of whatever it is, in this case, eros, are part of what um, determine, condition, shape, fabricate what that thing, in this case Eros, becomes and what it leads to. So if we want, if we're seeking a kind of final watertight understanding, as if there's some kind of objective understanding we can have of anything, then this insight into understanding presents us with a conundrum. Because my, whatever concept I have, it uh, and there'll always be some concept, it shapes the thing. Is that just a dead end, uh, chasing my tail round and round? Or is there an insight there that's actually we can use, uh, we can use well? I think the latter. Because rather than aiming at some kind of objective um, assessment or truth about what this thing or that thing is, in this case Eros, rather we understand something about understanding. And so we use that insight because we recognize, okay, well, we want to just support whatever um, conception or understanding or conceptual framework will will uh, open up more soul-making. We support the conception, the understanding, conceptual framework that opens up more soul-making, that supports more soul-making. It's that that we're after in our use of concepts, in our use of understanding, soul-making. Not something called truth or objective truth or neat watertight definitions or cleverness or anything like that. Soul-making. That's what we're after. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.